Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Barn Blog. And today I'm here with Max Seho, formerly of the Superstructure podcast of More Money on the Left, but now liberated from such things. Um, and we're here to talk about the perils of academia, critical humanities in academia, and uh, maybe even the limits of trying to popularize that discourse. So. Um, I'm going to start this off like I would an AA meeting almost. How did you end up an ex-academic? Oh, that's a long story, Derek. Um, well, it's, uh, I'm happy to be back. Thanks for having me Mm -hmm. back on the show. Um, perhaps, a, I guess a good place to start is maybe to talk about, um, the two strikes, both of different nature at the UCs, um, one with UAW and one uh, without UAW that sort of uh, bookended my time in uh, graduate school. Um, And so one of them was the cost of living adjustment strike, which was a wildcat strike right before COVID that COVID ended. And then the last one was the official UAW grad student uh, postdoc and researchers strike that um, achieved let's just say uh, a contract that certainly was not in line with um, not even the bleeding edge of the rank and file, but the kind of big middle of what the rank and file wanted and only was achieved through um, giving perks to the bigger campuses, Um, which is a long story. And there are other people who could tell that story uh, perhaps better than I could, but these two events, I think, really colored my view of the way that um, graduate school, academic labor, and ideas kind of intersect and potentially obfuscate the kind of structural dynamics uh, at the heart of these intellectual endeavors that certainly most think are the main goal of uh, entering and maintaining a career in academia. Okay, so your disillusionment is different than mine. I am also an ex-academic, although I uh, I quit twice. <laughs> I quit once after I finished my MFA and became a public school teacher, and then I quit again after becoming uh, a lecturer at a university in South Korea for several years 
and uh, dealing with a lot of PhDs from Ivy League schools and being, frankly, underimpressed with them. But one of the things that that got me out the first time is actually very similar to yours. Um, I worked in Georgia. People may or may not know public sector unions are effectively illegal in Georgia. Um, you can form associations, not unions. You cannot strike. You cannot do collective bargaining, um, et cetera. Um, and we tried to, before it was cool and the bleeding edge of academic labor, form a union. And we were very quickly informed that that was illegal and that we would be kicked out immediately upon doing so and probably even prosecuted. <laughs> so uh, we immediately dropped that. And I worked as an adjunct and for for a little while. And as an adjunct, I made less than minimum wage, actually, um, when I figured hours worked because we were contracted per class at around, at this time, around uh, $1,500 per class. And you could only really get three or four. Um, so if you put together multiple schools, you could maybe make sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars a year. You know, you could beat the the absurdly low U.S. poverty line of of fourteen thousand dollars a year, which is, uh, by the way, you have to make less than minimum wage to be under the poverty line in the United States. Um, you could beat that if you worked at two or three schools. Um, and so that had no appeal to me, um, particularly with the pressures of also trying to publish on top of that to be able to get out of that situation and being told if I stayed in that situation too long, it would be assumed that I was uh, happy with that and thus would be stuck in it because, you know, you are doing this for some kind of altruistic reason, usually because you come from money and you just want to teach. Um, that scenario quickly led me to, wow, there's something fundamentally fucked up about this. And I went, my institution went from undergrads being taught primarily by full associate or assistant professors um, to undergrads being taught primarily by TAs in the time period I was there. So I could see how this was happening downstream from the major institutions, which ha arguably had to do it because of their class size. Yeah, it's funny. Interest it's interesting to hear you talk about like the particular form of your experience, because I feel like becoming disillusioned from academia is something that's like, there are many different paths to that outcome, um, many different forks and cul-de-sacs one can find themselves on at different moments in time um, in their career slash. I mean, it's 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 hard to call it a career for some of the symptomatic reasons, I think, that that we'll get to. But um, and it the the stuff you're talking about is interesting because I think certainly before my time um, where the dynamics that you're describing kind of had already come into fruition um, and these shifts, whether it's at smaller, medium-sized institutions or some of the larger institutions that I um, did my PhD in, 
uh, well, never completed, but started and 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 did about half, more than half of my PhD. And um, these dynamics where grad student labor becomes kind of the crux of, particularly in the humanities, of the contact between uh, students and and the university um, is something that. I think any grad student now would kind of just assume and like recognize as just the status quo. Um, whether it's TAs taking on a grading workload or uh, teaching workload or just generally being the kind of primary contact between students um, and their classes. It's funny to hear you say that because to me, that was one of the kind of the last of my worries. Um, certainly, there was a lot of work. Uh, that mm-hmm. went into that sort of work, but that was something that I always felt like was it was more grounded in what the actual purpose of uh, the institution was than some of the other aspects of the research side and the way that the contemporary academic job market, particularly in the humanities, um, really skews uh, incentives to. I mean, this is something we were talking about both on Twitter and then offline in DMs to to create this striving for newness and for uh, a form of brand management as ultimately mm-hmm. the goal. Um, because the only way to get hired is to be loud um, or to get lucky and to ride a wave uh, yeah. and to appeal to a certain sense of novelty um, that will allow some boxes to be checked, whether it's by deans or administration or even inside departments themselves, which are trying to position themselves or sell themselves as a particular thing that deserves to be funded for a particular reason. Um, And this is something that, you know, you you can find, you find across the board in in many different disciplines, um, many different departments, many different universities. You know, I have my particular experience. You do do as well. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're on Twitter, you you find this sort of thing all over the kind of public scholarship space uh, precisely because, uh, and it's it's a really unfortunate situation, but the precarity at the heart of... um, at the heart of the funding model is is really polluted uh the the general approach i think that many many people take to uh the work and it uh, it's something that it's it's difficult to get around you know i'm speaking from my experience and i'm implicated in this experience as well but um it's it's really tough and and there's a lot of people who do really diligent and interesting work which is uh, which I in no means uh, no in no way mean to denigrate, but there is something I think generally speaking uh, at the core of the way everyone is always looking upward to a particular power hub that has levers over funding um, in order to secure. Uh, their particular trajectory or the trajectory of themselves and their friends or this kind of patronage network um, at the heart of some of uh, these hiring decisions that something that really does get lost is what the purpose um, of this kind of intellectual work and teaching uh, alongside it actually is. And I think it's hard to blame people for not 
really taking on that big picture of what the purpose is because because of the precarity and how it's so tied up in things like identity and 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 politics in a way that is in an abstract sense not necessarily just the politics of of the workplace um though some some hope that i at least have seen is is more uh greater politicization simply of the workplace of academia over time though certainly if anyone is following the aforementioned uh, UAW strike, uh, it's it's uh, hard to believe that um, unionization at the har- in in uh, in these public institutions will be the thrust of transforming actually the incentive structure at the heart of it. Um, it's 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 certainly necessary, but it's not going to change the underlying terms. At least that's that's my view and my experience of. Um, these sorts of environments. Yeah, so I have done a lot on the UAW strikes. I've had some people who were involved on the bleeding edge come in, tell me about the limitations. Um, conversely, we've been talking about this problem in the humanities and novelty seeking in research. Um, and ironically, I think it's been to the detriment of the research. Um, and it's definitely been to the detriment of teaching. Mm-hmm. but so what do I mean by that? I mean, there's, there's a tendency to find niche things in text right now that leads you into all kinds of just almost actively ignoring prior research to make an original claim um, on one hand. And then there's the, other, there's the other hand where like there's a decoupling of any empirical or historical for lack of a better term, rigor. And I realize there's all kinds of associations with throwing that term around Um, where you're just basically ad hocing theoretical apparatuses together to generate something unique through one or two lenses as if you are working with a kaleidoscope. Um, And often I don't feel like that actually illuminates that much about either the lenses are what is being looked at. So these are two two big tendencies you see in in humanities academia. Um, one of the things I've never understood, and and this despite the quote postmodern turn in the and really we should say the post structuralist turn because postmodernism is too vague a concept. Uh-huh. Um, in the nineteen seventies, is there was an aspiration to be scientific, even down to the way that we decided to write um, in the humanities. Like we adopted a pseudoscientific posture of, of thesis hypothesis and whatever as, as a means of writing, not without some positive effect, but like it was based off the idea that what we did could be structured the same way as reporting on a scientific experiment. Uh, and thus we started this, the tendency that, that I think also disconnected us from humanities academics in particular from the general public and made us easily like made even good research easily mockable because of it. I mean, we can think about, not, not so much the Elaine Sokol affair and the Sokol hoax, but all the s- subsequent stuff that came after it. Mm-hmm. Um, as an example of this, where 
people could not, even if they were fairly well educated and literate, just pick up a, a work of humanity scholarship and comprehend what was actually at stake in it anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot there. I think I want to take uh, the sort of first part with okay. what you said about the um, ad hoc theoretical apparatuses. Um, I ha- it's funny. I have a I have a an example that I think kind of speaks to this, and it's kind of a little on the nose, but um, it's it's common, you know, in my time. So I I was a PhD student in comparative literature at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, which meant I spent a lot of time uh, across different departments, including uh, English, history, uh, film and media, and a few others, uh, religious studies, and. Um, over the course of that time, I've heard both from multiple people and through direct um, kind of interaction with people and mentors trying to guide graduate students toward the job market in their career who mean well. Um, but the often like some of the suggestions that students would get is to pull together basically a few authors. So just take, for example, Deleuze, um, Freud, and then some contemporary author, um, take a subject, whether it's a, a film or like an, an object, a work of art, uh, uh, some, some works of literature, pull together some theoretical apparatus, literally invent a term, just come up with a term, um, and then write a, essentially a narrative, right? That speaks to all of the things you've corralled together um, in some coherent form, right? So emphasis on the coherence of the argument rather than the structure of... Sorry, hold on. Those are my headphones here. All right. Um, Emphasis on the coherence of the argument rather than the actual structure of the research and investigation um, in any sense that is durable, that's really deeply in touch with uh, a field of knowledge, right? That's that stuff you end up doing after the fact, right? To, to, to dot I's and cross T's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just a kind of a method for, for teaching you know, grad students who ultimately want to be trained in in something, but there aren't the resources, whether it's of mentorship or of time, given the teaching workloads we sp- we spoke about, right? Given the the exploitation that needs to happen um, of graduate students' labor to really dig into um, the university context of like kind of the origins of what the universities were. Um, which I'm not saying those are necessarily good, right? But we have to remember what universities are, um, like as a, as an institution with the history, um, which isn't fundamentally a um, you know a, a place simply for the uh, the training of public scholars who are meant to influence the world in some sense, right? There, these are often places of of uh, the intersection of of free free thought and religious authority, <laughs> uh, you know, historically at least in some sense. Um, so the incentives and then the the mentorship around this sort of ag- ad hoc theoretical work 
coupled with, again, the precarity of the job market, means that structurally speaking, it is incredibly difficult to actually venture into deep historical work. And, and I want to bracket the his departments in history a little bit because they are somewhat exempt from this in certain ways. However, they have an even deeper funding crisis. Yeah. Um, and I think there's the, the those are not unrelated. Um than other parts of the humanities or things like the digital humanities, which um, serve, you know, big tech and these notions of uh, the innovative side of uh, humanist discourses that often are overlap with uh, corporate interests and the interests of certain stakeholders across the economy. Um, and so what, what all this leads to is like you said, right. And I think, knowing your your audience and knowing knowing you a bit and and your interests often these revivals of these certain brands of of uh of returns to different scholars in a kind of cyclical way that actually ends up ignoring anything learned along the way right mm -hmm. so um instead of reading the uh the history of of Marxism, right? We just read Marx again. Um, instead of instead of reading um, the lineage of something like psychoanalysis, right? We'll read uh, a chapter from a Freud book uh, in a seminar, and that'll be that, right? And and we'll have these general contacts with these primary sources, maybe a few secondary sources, and then the rest of it ends up being. Um, a very niche interest that I think ultimately succumbs to uh, your your point about post-structuralism or post-modernism to, to be a bit sloppy with the overlap that these niche interests can't can't cohere really as a structure of a field or a discipline in any mm. genealogical sense, but ultimately end up uh, fraying into a bunch of different nodes that sit in singular pieces individuated from one another, um, which I think is a symptom of what, whatever you want to call it, neoliberalism or just the, the, uh, the continual rise of uh, individualism that is liberalism. Um, it, it is, it's incredibly deeply entrenched um, in discourses around uh, in, in the humanities uh, in American universities and also a, a little less perhaps in, in Europe, but that's a complicated story that I think we might bracket. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this. One of the things about the humanities and my, my background is actually similar years. My, my master's is in poetry, uh, master's of fine arts is in poetry, but I have a, a subspecialization in theory. And I have a mass. Uh, I have uh, education in writing, which is practical. as the teaching of writing to young students, and then degrees in in liberal studies. Uh, in my case, that was mixture of philosophy and anthropology, and a degree in and like traditional English major sort of background. Um, and I've done because of that particular background, and because that I'm effectively ABD too. I've done a whole lot of research in a bunch of different things. I mean, what I thought I was training to be, believe it or not, was a Koreanist um, uh, way back in the day, um, 
when I thought I was going to get my going to go back and finish a PhD in, in Korean American literature and study Korean culture. So it was a very strange path to to what I was on. But there, what I discovered was fads, basically, and yeah. a, a teaching that was both. And it's hard to explain how it ends up being this, both entirely too broad, and I don't mean that in like the generalist sense because it doesn't produce generalists. Mm-hmm. You, you like, you you take your your first. I took five philosophy courses before I got to a philosophy course where we actually completed more than one entire text. Like, here's three essays by Quine. Here's an essay or a part of an essay by. Wittgenstein. Here's some stuff by Carnap. Here's some stuff by Nietzsche. Here's some stuff by Heidegger. Had good luck with that. Um, you know, well, let's talk about Foucault and the death of the author. Blah blah blah. But nothing of any significant engagement, even to understand the context of the essays I was given. Um, and then when I started. And when I was in the master's program and then in the, in the MFA program, and I started specializing as a subspecialization to poetry, like a critical theoretical apparatus um, to back that up, it was hyper specific immediately. You know, it's like, okay, now you need to like read everything by Althusser and get into Althusser and Althusserian Marxism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also, we're only applying this to the works of Southern authors from from uh, 1880 to 1950, and uh, even better yet, if you limit which race of, of people you're studying. And it's just like, okay, um, so you move from the hyper-broad to the incredibly specific very quickly, actually. It's like... It's like we've been studying everything. You have some subspecialization in your senior year in your undergrad, and then you immediately go into micro specializations. And I, part of that feels like it's because it's supposed to track the way you learn science, I guess. <laughs> like, because that kind of makes sense if you think about a broad scientific education. Um, but it doesn't make sense when you're talking about like, I can't even contextualize all of the debates of which I'm being exposed to and, and also asked to teach. Mm-hmm. So for me, Oh, you know, this is, this was my ambivalence about the whole teaching retirement. You made a point that I think is really good. That's actually m- tends to be more relevant to what you're, you know, what the institution's for and what you're doing. I started learning all these debates, not from the classes, not even from my research, but to be able to answer the questions of my students. Like, which also meant that I had to be willing to do additional research on basic shit that I wasn't taught um, to do a job on top of trying to create original research myself. Um, now, I was an MFA, so this is both creative work and research, because that was the nature of the program. Sometimes programs are one or the other. I had to do both. Um, and that was nuts. Um, then I get moved into a teaching program, which is so completely different that you don't even know what to do with it. Like it's not anything all at all like the rest of academia. Um, it's basically a practical training program with a lot of stuff about how to do paperwork, frankly. Um, and then some, there is some critical pedagogy in there. There is some scholarship, 
but the scholarship standards are also fr- frankly way lower and you just realize oh the humanities are are, are very specific in what they're asking um and then you know However, when I'm like trying to help students figure out why this would be relevant to them, this is actually somewhat hard to do with the like, you know, let's talk about uh, composition theory and how Omike Baba's, you know, Decolonial X applies to this very specific uh, Korean American text from 1985. Like, um, and it took a lot of the fun out of it for me, particularly when I realized the stuff I was pouring my energy into had no audience. The, its likelihood of being read by anybody was pretty low, even even when it got published. And that point, I think, is so crucial. I mean, the, everything you said, but uh, something that's really... I mean, I'll, I'll use this word also with the uh, with the kind of psychoanalytic intonation uh, hovering. It perverse about, um, I think, the experience of of contemporary mid to high level uh, academic discourse is precisely that there's these two pulls, right? And you you narrated them, right? There's this this sense of generality and this niche pull. This, this sense of expertise or narrowing. Um, one can probably, you know, draw it in many different kinds of graphical forms um, where not only, right, you're meant to have a, an outwardly facing general understanding of many different debates, right? You're supposed to check boxes. Does your work have a critique of political economy, right? Do you say the words like in capital X, Y, and Z, Yes. Okay. Good. Do I right? throw the word material interest around enough? There you go. Material, right. You, like material conditions or all whatever. these all these buzzwords, right? That that have to check boxes in order to maintain a certain amount of disciplinary relevance and then social relevance, uh, both in the discourse of academic thought, but also in the wider sense of what um, many of these humanities programs see themselves as doing. And I, I keep coming back to that point, right? Because I think there's a later on in in this in this point that I'm going to make. There, there's a, a kind of deep identity crisis actually at the heart of um, the humanities, and 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 this there's a crisis in the humanities about what it is and what it's doing. And I think you're pushing on this point about um, audience, and you're pushing on this point about. Um, what training really looks like, what it's for. Um, And so uh, I say all of that to say, right, being pulled in these two different directions. On the one hand, I have to know the ins and outs of, um, right, decolonial theory, the environmental humanities, the history uh, of German philosophy and media theory, um, the history of political economy in the Western world, uh, a general sense of post-colonial thought, um, formal uh, formal analysis, right, across different aesthetic categories, uh, uh, linguistic skills, right? You know, you have to know at least it, it is said one has to know or have a translating knowledge of, of two or three languages in, in many humanities programs. So there's this general sense of which a generalist, a general knowledge of 
the history of thought is is a must. It's something that you have to have, or at least you have to be able to speak to, gesture at. In you have ways to be able often... to fake it. If exactly. Else. You have <laughs> to be able to fake it because you have to gesture at it in ways that um, that show that you are gesturing at it, right? When, in, when you actually dig or ask critical questions about these things, there's nothing there often, right? Some people have specialties and have studied these things, and sure, they know the ins and outs of it. But in a more generalist sense, um, it's it's a facade. And I think um, that's kind of how a lot of work is, right, um, in, in contemporary society, right? You have to speak to a general understanding and then have one or two things that you actually understand. So that's a way in which academia doesn't deviate very far from your typical corporate life, Um and then it comes down to, like you said, what the actual skill set is. Like, what is the actual interest? What is the skill set? Um, and so, for example, one of mine was I taught German language. Uh, and I like that is something that I could do. That was a skill. That was something that students wanted to learn uh, because often because they wanted to be engineers, uh, sometimes for a sense of cosmopolitan co- cultural knowledge. But that is something that could be marketed and was marketed, right? Like it was, it was an enterprise. It was seen as such to uh, the department and and other departments that I that I uh, encountered uh, in my time. Um, and and you know another another aspect of of what I ended up having to really learn and get a deep knowledge of was ancient to medieval Western literature. This is not something that I specialized in. This something that uh, really played a part in any of my research or my public uh, intellectual uh, engagement. But this is something that when brass, you know, brass tacks, I had to understand and learn the insides and outs of, um, of Greek tragedy, of, uh, of all the way up until from, from Greek works of literature up to uh, Dante and uh, the very early modern works of literature. These are classes that I taught, mul- you know, over multiple years. Um, and, and, but the thing about that is, so I think it's interesting then how thinking with at least my research trajectory, cutting edge theory, political economy and the humanities was what my research agenda was. But when push came to shove, my, what I actually did for the university was taught engineering students, German, and, uh, fulfilled a requirement uh, to teach, you know, almost five weeks of the Odyssey and then another sampling of, of other works of literature. Um, and, and there's variation there. But I think this, this speaks to a, a kind of crisis um, where the, a lot of the institutional um, legacy of academia and these departments is very caught up in um, it's canon, it's genealogy. And I think rightfully so in the sense that um, that is how institutions work, right? The institutions develop over time. People are trained over time uh, to teach a particular uh, set of uh, canonical texts and then add on particular research agendas to that. That is often how um, departments work. I mean, the joke in film departments is, you know, the first film anyone ever learns is Citizen Kane. And that is, again, for a reason. Um, 
there is a genealogy and a canon that people speak to. But then what ends up happening is, is the other pull ends up asserting itself. This pull to novelty, um, this facade that is necessary um, to continue to generate the idea of an innovative research trajectory over time and of um, the development of particular disciplines as having some sort of movement forward in a, in a, in a, in almost like a, a, an idealistic sense of, of moral good. Um, And, and so what ends up happening is though, is there's this duality at play and it's, it's a perverse set of incentives where um, the canon pulls us in one direction and then the need to be uh, cutting edge novel uh, I think a word that that we brought up in some of our com- conversations, polemical, political, asserts itself on the other end. And one is more of the traditional sense of what the university has done over a long period of time, the canonical stuff. Um, and the other is um, both a political imperative and but a, a, in a more deeper sense, a, a material compa- uh, imperative at the heart of needing to justify the existence of the humanities to begin with. Because um, in, and, you know, there are maybe deeper people who think more deeply about uh, the present and uh, present political economy and history. Uh, maybe the, the Fukuyamists out there could speak to something about this. But in, in our contemporary moment, there is, I, I think, a, a deep sense in which, whether it's the the kind of fracturing of neoliberalism or like what neoliberalism wrought for so many years, um, there's something lost about what what the purpose of ac- academia is, and so it ends up spinning in this way to try and find find that that sense of purpose, that place in society. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we even see shifts, right? There's a split on the right and the left, and the left has a, a view of the critical university and, and things like that, that I think are, in, in, in the abstract and in the sense of what my opinion is, just good, like generally a, a good thing. But the right has a view of an intransigent, traditional Western civilization-based analysis of a particular historical narrative and canon. And so these two things are pulling against each other. And I think there's a fracture then at the heart of what academics are meant to do amidst all of these torrents of variables. And then, you know, when they have to think about ultimately when push comes to shove and uh, their salaries on the line, um, the, the ideals often uh, go out the window um, at least that that is my experience of many uh, many academics in this moment um, navigating things like uh, c- financial crises or um, budget crises or or things like strikes where it takes actually putting oneself on the line to really be in solidarity with um, people in the lower strata so there's a lot there but um, I think that that's me trying to speak to what you're describing, right? This, this sort of generalist view. We're not producing generalists. Um, and we're, and there isn't an acknowledgement of what is happening, which is really a, a very niche, um, 
a, a continued fraying into many different niche interests on behalf of uh, research agendas, which I think, generally speaking, like are good as in like it's good for people to be able to research things that they're interested in. But that comes in complicated tension with the market and the institutional structures that um, that kind of self-guided research um, sits within. Yeah, so there's the critical the, the critical apparatus, there's the research apparatus, which may or may not overlap with the critical apparatus. And then there's this traditional apparatus. And let's let's first be honest about where the humanities come from. Like it comes from religious instruction and legal instruction. In the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century, in both the America and in England, it was an answer to the German academic programs that were beginning to develop in the middle of the 19th century, uh, particularly German philology, which is why we started building a literary canon and a classics canon, uh, constructing it the way that we do now with elements of the old Christian stuff in there, uh, the Protestant stuff in there, but all the way back to ancient Greeks. I mean, you know, I make this point all the time from an anthropological point of view. The reason why we think of like ancient Greece as ur Western civilization, the reason why we think of it as Western civilization at all, as opposed to like claiming Persian civilization as Western, uh, which maybe we should um, or something like that. Like, is kind of an accident of competing nationalisms in the 19th century. Um, to think of the, you know, and a kind of tenuous relation to the classics, trying to come up with a secular justification outside of Christendom for the need for these universities. Um, that I think in the humanities, that's more intensely felt because that's where our canon comes from. And mm -hmm. then, other political competition that emerges in the mid 20th century and the way that institutionalized itself in the teaching of children. So like if there's a, there's an awful lot of modernism in the way we teach uh, like contemporary literature to kids, because that's when it was fucking formulated. Like we, we, we nailed this together as something other than like some school mom somewhere trying to get people to read anything. Uh, in the 1920s to the 1950s. And it shows up in our, in our canonical text and then its expansions, you know, continue. Um, for example, when we started including like Latin literature or, or uh, African-American literature, uh, the moment we start including it, it's the moment you start seeing the stuff that's in there. And, and while there is innovation in that from the universities, I can tell you if you, when you go and like, say you, you learn English and you go and teach English. The irony is, is what you teach students in, in an English class. If you're a traditional English major, you haven't read since you've been in high school. <laughs> like you were not actually trained on the great Gatsby or the Shakespeare is the exception, but like, sure. but in general, like, no, you don't actually read that stuff that much anymore. It's not, it's not part of what you do. Um, and then there's all the other, yeah. So, like, I remember the first time I was asked to teach, like, a Literature 2010 class. Uh, and I'm having to teach Tartuffe. And, um, and Oedipus. And I got obsessed with all this stuff. But, again, I was 
my my research background was poetry of the americas like it's just like american poetry latin american poetry uh poetry in in spanish and english and a little bit of poetry in german because i have a working understanding of german and to speak to your thing about the the practical and the, the the language component of this um even before i had stayed in germany like i passed that german language exam i am not fluent in german um i'm i'm pretty i'm okay at it i am proficient in german although if uh, you really wanted me to like teach german literature with that level of knowledge it would be a joke well i mean i'll just say straight up right language proficiency in graduate school um unless you're in explicitly like for example a german department or a french department where you are day in day out teaching that language as an end product of your training. Um, but uh, generally across the humanities, it's a joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a box checking exercise. And I, and it, and it makes sense that it is because no one has the time to spend the years required to learn a language. I mean, it, right. Like it's one of the, the harder things to do, um, not as a child, right? I mean, this these are things that just like go unsaid and unremarked upon, right? Uh, the only reason why I know German is because I lived there. Um, and and then was able to add on after the fact, right? Through study and reading and things like that. Yeah. But um, I lived in German and I'm still not fluent. I mean, I lived in Germany. I lived in, I lived in Munich for about for about nine months and I'm still not fluent. It's, well, the grammar is a difficult <laughs> one, but... Um, but this is just right. It's a it's another example. Like and like you said, right? You were you end up encountering and having to teach works that you've never really encountered, read, maybe not since high school. So what ends up happening is um, students and then professors get trained to be readers. Right? You are meant to encounter a text, uh, and like I'm not going to get into the formalist versus you know, contextualist debates and these sorts of things. Like, I don't want to get into literary theory here. But the point point being is you encounter a set of texts and a set of histories and contexts with a kind of preset methodological approach, how you interpret that text. And this is generally how people interpret text. But there's a difference between okay, doing like there, there's a, you know, a thing called grad school reading and any grad student would know, right? You grad mm -hmm. school read a book, um, which is usually parts of the intro, maybe a chapter that you're interested in move on. Um, and there's a lot of skimming that happens, a lot of just not reading at all that happens. Um, I mean, let's, and, let's be honest about the, your reading list you're given when you go into a PhD program or an FA program, any terminal degree. You can't meaningfully do it in two years and it be close reading. You can't. It's impossible. No well, one actually. Right. Does. Because once again, we, we run into the structural identity crisis at the heart of what the university is, right? Where it's mm. like, what is it that we're doing here? Are we meant to spend like six years doing a PhD, not teaching at all, reading one very narrow disciplinary canonical list, writing on one of its forefathers, and then producing a piece of work. Like I, I still, you know, I worked with academics who were old enough that 
that is what they did, right? Back, you know, before the mm. 70s, or maybe in the 70s, um, where that was what the job was, right? You would master the canon inside it out, right? If you were a Germanist, you would read, you'd read Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Freud. Uh, and if you wanted to take some ventures into more of the idealists or others, you'd pick, you'd pick your, your poets and you'd pick your literary figures and you would focus in that tradition on those particular questions. The tradition itself was seen as prestigious enough to justify the endeavor. Whereas now there is a greater need to justify the self as the researcher outside of any traditional tradition of works up with which one embarks upon researching. And this produces uh, a, a, a deeply um, intention and ultimately confusing set of incentives for people. Um, and, and oftentimes the work ends up being the result of that, of those incentives to jumbled together, right? And this is where I think we get into a lot of uh, a lot of writing that ends up deeply political, and and I think ultimately from a, from a moral perspective, deeply deeply good um, in the in a in a sort of abstract sense, but that can't actually capture any of the underlying structural imperatives that are at the heart of why there is this feeling of such. Uh, a political impasse and such a confusion of trajectories, right? It's it, nothing is clear with which where you are supposed to go, where you're supposed to begin, um, and and that confusion ends up being the breeding ground for uh, exploitation of 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 labor and of uh, labor in multiple forms, including uh, in in assistantships, um, but also, of course. Uh, in just under underpaying teachers um, and and under housing uh, and and ultimately relying on people like you said who have independent wealth or loans to to perpetuate um, the system and so there's there's something that that is kind of it's pretty deeply untractable uh, there which which is not to say that the work is not interesting but I, it has to be viewed through the lens of that that those intractable contradictions in the first place i think to understand what it means socially and historically um outside of the terms that it that a lot of this work is setting up for itself right i mean i think again to add this institutional history back we might we have to remind ourselves what what the university comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, my frenemy Colin Drum and I actually talk about this and we talk about like, okay, yeah, in some ways the university is a medieval institution. It's one of the few left uh, of any, any huff in um, modern life in anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it's structural setup that reflects that. In other ways, it's a completely modern institution that's really an invention of the Cold War. And then grafts it on to that. And this is where a lot of, you know, a lot of people make superficial and rather dumb uh, comparisons about like, oh, well, 
you know, there's a class of educated managers. And I'm like, well, at the end of the Fordis system, there was an, an attempt to use universities to educate management. Uh, then it became a way to sort people and outsource training from all jobs into the public cost sphere or onto private coffers and not the job itself. So, for example, uh, I used to work in insurance and I know the history of, of, of things like actuaries. It's a weird thing to know the history of, but I do. Mm-hmm. Um, actuarial stuff used to just require an associate's level understanding of math and statistics. Um, you could get it with a high school degree and uh, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And your job would play for you to get a few more classes to have the specific kinds of statistical knowledge you need and you know and 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 then it became a kind of program within accounting um and now it requires something like the equivalent of a master's degree basically to do um some of that is because the increased complexity of statistics you have to deal with but a lot of it is actually just to limit job applicants um, one of the interesting things about right now that we have to look at in this light political economic turn is we're going to see a lot of those credentializations reverse because there's just not enough people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's been grafted on and yet changed the nature of the institution and the humanities in particular. Um, I think we talk about the split, like, okay, we're in one hand, we're viewed as the bestowers of this cultural tradition of, Western culture, or even let's take even broad view, multi multi ethnic liberal culture. Both mm-hmm. things are are have canons in which yeah. we inculcate, and we also inculcate both of them. Like, um, but we're also seen as practical job trainers. As you said, you were teaching German to engineering students. Um, I used to teach people how to write English and read English, so they could you know in other countries, so they could participate in science scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um uh and then there's this this other critical mission in the humanities that we see ourselves as like well we're also criticizing this tradition that we're safeguarding and developing new forms of inquiry through this criticism but as you said there's this need for for originality and there's also a need for programs to be attractive. So there's a couple of different pools. So you see pools towards incorporating pop culture, but with advanced scholarly critical lenses are moves towards, you know, finding uh, marginalized groups in the past and bringing up the literature, but often also somewhat overstating how common it was to have read them. Um, And this these are these are actually good things mm-hmm. uh, i think uh, in some ways all of these things except for maybe outsourcing jobs training <laughs> from private institutions into the public um are good things but in the humanities we're kind of expected to do all of them like i will say this the sciences have their issues and science and and they are numerous and and beyond the scope of the show but but they are different on this front. Like, and the, the, one of the weird things right now, okay, we were talking about the crisis of history. Um, I, you can't convince people to be English majors, even though it's like more 
profitable than being a business major. And, and <laughs> I don't think we should justify it that way. It's just like there's so few of us who do it uh, that now it's become a sought after skill to 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 have the basic level of reading and writing. And yet uh, I, I couldn't tell you what we're actually like. I have trouble understanding why the traditional English major exists still other than to create teachers for high school students. Uh, but, but even that we increasingly don't teach that kind of literature in high school anymore. Like mm. there's just less and less of it. Um, so who are we, what, what is this preparing anyone for, including the scholars themselves? And it's not clear to me that it is. And it's also, there's another element of it. I guess we kind of beat around the bush about it where we are training people off of the assumption. We're training them to, to do the thing that they are studying under, which is to be a university level, a university uh, researcher and teacher uh, professor of some sort. Mm -hmm. Um, But we all know that we're not too. Like, like there's way too many people needed to uphold the system that even keep it functioning. Then there could possibly be jobs that and so there's this pervasive cynicism in the humanities and yet people aren't like and i'm like okay and this this is something where i almost become sympathetic to the conservative critique where i'm like so we're spending we're having people spend if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of the money hundreds of thousands of dollars of their time mm-hmm. lost um, income and yeah, yeah opportunity right um to to maintain a system of which one in 20 of them are going to be able to actually use what they're being trained for. And yet we're also not changing what we're doing with that in mind. It it's so interesting. I'm so glad you brought up this last point because I mean, it's one of those things that everyone says, right? Like, well, obviously there's not enough jobs, right? And like, yeah, there obviously is. And everyone knows that, but like you said, um, no one changes behaviors right like there there is there is these what it ends up being is this aspirational desire for there to be more jobs Mm -hmm. and then okay well there aren't jobs but you're here which is you know understandable like i understand professors who approach graduate students say you're here i have to try to give you the best mentorship that i can given the circumstances which is often do something that is flashy and new and interesting, right? Um, that is at a particular intersection. You set, you pitch your sail just perfectly to catch the wind and maybe you'll get lucky. Um, but I'm in the habit more recently of trying to strip down institutional social arrangements into um what the kind of bare bones experience of them are. That's at least how Mm -hmm. I'm approaching the world. And as you were talking about all these particular different grafted on um, responsibilities that then the humanities has to do all of because they have to self-justify. What it made me think of is, is what, right. What the, what the actual experience of a university is like actually what it is right outside of, these abstract notions of the things that we are studying in our head. And, um, and it comes back to me, at least for me, back down to that, 
that kind of enculturation purpose, right? That that is this legacy of an, the medieval institution, and then as you said, right, this this challenging the the German university and its uh, its stature in the nineteenth century, um, which itself had a very distinct cultural role within Protestantism um, and a juridical role and very comp- complex intersection that I don't necessarily need to get into for this point. But really what it is, is it's a place for people to congregate, pass on knowledge, relate in many different ways, in, in, in culturally approved and disapproved ways. It's, it's a space of a particular form of relation. Um, that provides an experience to students, whether they are undergrads or graduate students or, crucially, professors, right? It's an Mm -hmm. experience of life that is distinct. Um, And it's a space that is meant to host that experience of life. Um, And it's one that's meant not to be grounded in toil and physical activity, but mental, mental work and... Um, and mental discipline alongside um, collaborative forms of kind of, like you said, like liberal comings together of a, of a multi, multi-ethnic or, mo- or diverse uh, polity that is meant to inhabit that space in a particular way. And that then ends up going on to produce, you know, good citizens, quote unquote, good workers or uh, good thinkers um, along, along the way. But if someone were to have told me before I went into graduate school, look, you're not going to get a job, but like, really, you're not going to get a job. Not like, but you never know, right? Not the there's the hope. But what you can get is a particular experience that is distinct and interesting uh, and will allow you to investigate things that you are particularly interested in ways that are you know, not on a strict nine to five time schedule. Like we forget to talk about these things, right? Mm-hmm. The perks and benefits that are um, where you have summers off and a winter break uh, and a spring break, you know, as an adult. Um, and you're surrounded by by other people your age who are doing a similar thing. Um, there, There is... There is meaning to be had here as as a social experience, right? One that is that enculturates and offers a space for a particular kind of self edification um, that we often end up seeing uh, the 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 result of the research being anyway. Um, that I think could be socially useful um, when it's positioned and and framed or approached in in the right way. Um, and I think I think that that's honestly the way most people view it is is a haven from from the toil of of the workplace, um, and and to me, I'm very sympathetic and have benefited from from that. Um, but but I think the problem ultimately is is that ends up being completely divorced from what the the underlying institutional purpose ends up being. So you have these fraught tensions that end up playing themselves out. And, you know, in some sense, that's just humanity. Um, This is just an institution and that's kind of how they work. But in another sense, I think um, that view really cuts against, like 
the any answer to the question that is put in clear terms like what is actually the purpose of an english degree of of you know of of reading james joyce you know is it to understand the the innate post-structural impulses in the sort of 20th century pre-fascist um western european context or is it just a a way of of thinking through certain aspects and affects that are inherent in in a kind of literary approach to the world i mean that that we inhabit right like where is the actual locus of of causality and dare i say like the, the sort of grounded meaning of what is actually going on here uh whether it's from read from a, a very strictly sort of critical political economic lens or or a, a critical psychoanalytic one i think ultimately they both end up intersecting back towards that that project of enculturation and that's the space of that experience which is why which is why the conservatives and the right wingers do have to attack the university because that goes against um in that those the, their project of uh eliminating the the self in in a in a liberal sense um and cultivating a good ordered conservative society but at the same time they also have a vision for the ac- academic life as an as a part of that project of enculturating their good citizens as well so i mean at least that's how i'm looking at the the way this this crisis is manifesting politically and then at the level of the the, the underlying structures yeah that's that's interesting i think that's interesting and i think we have to ask ourselves then I mean, to me, there's two liberal subjects, too. I mean, like, um, for example, and this is this is a, this is a this is not something we've mentioned, but the totally cynical element of networking in the humanities that can emerge, uh, particularly at the Ivies, um, and in which case the humanities really is their. Uh, for people to leave it um, and then to start other things, um, whether it's public advocacy jobs, uh, editing, going into law, whatever. Um, and, and in those cases, um, how do I say this? Uh, the humanities is kind of a holding ground. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that's most people's experience, but it is an experience out there. And when conservatives want to say something, that's what they're going to bring up because Mm -hmm. that's the easiest thing. Well, Oh, it's not really about education anyway. It's just about networking. Like, and there, and and to be honest with you, there is a certain amount of truth to that. Um, But so that's like a a fifth or sixth thing we're scaffolding onto this. Yeah, right? I mean that. But there's a lot of education alongside, right? I think right. I, I would never say there's not education, but it's right. Education in a vacuum, it doesn't. It means it means very little, I think, to me. Right? It's like where does that then go? How does that that intellect and that and that what is learned get directed, both individually and then socially? Um, yeah, and and that's that's to me that's important because. I don't think taking a completely cynical view of what's going on is actually going to help you. 
Um, and by oh. that, oh, it's just not working. Or uh, I learned a lot in grad school about how to read that has enabled me to be able to self-educate at a pretty rigorous level. I was not, for, for example, my interest in Marxism history. I'm an autodidact in that. But but to say, but I'm not really an autodidact because I was trained in how to read and contextualize text, mm -hmm. like in the shitty way that I was trained in it in some cases because it was, you know, way too much at a time. It's like I remember going to a class and they're like, "Okay, we're reading a theory book and a novel by Faulkner every week," which no, you're not. <laughs> like like I mean, I I attempted. Nobody to. is. <laughs> like, yeah, but, I mean, but, you know. <laughs> I think the one time I fully read the like when when with an out within like an insane assignment like that, the one time I actually fully read it was like my second quarter before I knew better. And I, you know, was would start reading at 6 p.m. and I would finish at midnight. And I and over the course of the week, I'd be able to to complete the the assignment. But like you can't, it's impossible to sustain that level of vigorous. Uh, I, I mean, at least I, I think at least plausibly speaking, like from my experience of other people reading, that's not what ends up happening. Right. Um, my was the same thing as I, for the first, the first uh, semester of my graduate school, I really did the reading for yeah. real. And I almost died. Right. Like, because I also had to grade, 120 essays a night a week and and then write papers and my paper quality started really declining because i was doing the work which was absurd mm -hmm. so you learned how for most professors and there was and everyone hated these professors there were professors that would try to like old school trick you and like okay we're taking a may master class and we're gonna this was another absurd one read everything hawthorne's ever written in four weeks Right. Right. Uh, and I'm going to test you with quote explication tests, which don't come up a lot. Um, well, there are a few sadists out there. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, why. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And this was a prof this was one of those professors that totally would like, you know, your graduate degree. Well, you just got your B, which for everybody who's not in graduate school, that's not, for most people. It's not a big deal for graduate school. It's like, oh, ooh. Yeah. Um rare. It's rare not to get an A in graduate school. I yeah, think it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> like you actually have to not do the work. Um except in this this class. But it was it was a good reminder of how impossible it was because it's like it in some ways actually exposed the lie. Mm -hmm. Because it's like we all know that we can't really do this to any significant level of rigor and do everything else you're asking us and meet all these questions and teach okay and also i'm teaching by the second year i'm teaching myself you know undergraduates so i gotta do the reading for that and honestly i usually do actually have to do the reading for that as to not totally appear yes. like a jackass for my students mm -hmm. so there's this weird sort of dissidence where you're like okay the stuff that i'm supposed to be reading for myself i'm actually not reading very deeply at all i'm like i'm doing exactly what you say we're gonna read the beginning ending we're gonna we're gonna do keyword searches uh, for for anything related to anything interesting I read in the thesis, then I'm going to read some secondary literature about it, and then I'm going to go back and find quotes to back that up, and then that's how we're going to approach this, except for the key work that I'm going to be actually doing some serious work on, and I really am going to read that very closely. Um, but 
but then like I'm reading all this stuff. It's not even supposed to come up that I'm teaching that I'm just supposed to already be super familiar with, which we all have talked about how we're not. Um, and, uh, so we're having to read that because in some ways, like I know my students are going to catch me out on not really knowing that more than my professors want to catch me out on mm-hmm. it. It's like, they know that they're teaching me no, and no one ever says this, but they know it. They know that they're teaching me a way of, of showing intellect in a lot of areas and like having passable seeming knowledge, but not really having to engage it except on a few key points. Like, yes, if you, if you don't know what you're writing your dissertation on in real intimate detail, you are indeed fucked. Right. But right. Um, I don't think anyone really expects you, even for one of the hardest contests, to have actually slowly and deeply read all 350 books on your reading list for comps. No, I mean, it's it's a joke. I mean, I, I have to say, right, it's it's there's the moment where you're assigned the reading list and then there's like the wink, you know, Yeah. right. It's like. And, and that's, and it's funny because I was in a department that was like considered archaic when it came to comps um, because the, the remnants of the sort of older comp lit uh, discipline, which was a lot more kind of, um, let's just say rigorous in within its terms, um, Mm. it, it, it was very difficult. And it, these, these exams were very difficult when I compared them to, for example, English or our film media or other types of exams that, that people would, would do and take. But, um, and, and it's funny, like in the department I was in, like we just reformed that. We just changed that and made them easier because no one could meet the standard of that old way of doing things. But these things have just slowly happened without an actual, like, reform of the underlying purpose and structure um and i think i i want to address in in the the part that you said about networking because i i don't want it to be misconstrued that what my suggestion is is that the humanities or the university is all about networking um i think i think much more so than networking it's about self self edification self discovery and the experience of adulthood through this mediated form of an intellectual life um, that is meant to prepare you for encountering the world. And so there's this funny heuristic I have like thinking about and reflecting back to grad school. It's like you, you can know the trajectory of someone by what happens after they read Nietzsche. Uh, Do they decide to make peace with the world and enter it and, and, and leave, or do they, uh, do they take the, deeply cynical route that ends up staying in in the structure of the academic space that uh, Nietzsche so hated and rejected after his his time in it? Or do they completely erase all the insights and end up uh, just deciding that it, it it is and can be a haven from the world, even when uh, it, it very deeply isn't um, and outside of of the structures of the economy that most in the humanities would at least passingly critique, um, and I think that ends up being the problem for for a lot of scholarship that ends up getting stuck in a few of those different pathways. Right, you end up being a deeply a deeply critical Marxist or a post structuralist that really believes in in outsides, um, or you end up 
down the path of a kind of how would I put this? Uh, uh, just a, a little, a, a bit more I- idealistic approach to reform uh, than perhaps is is merited. And usually, those those people are on tenure track. I guess I would say. Um, yeah, I was about to say, if you actually learn the lessons of the critical scholarship, it's often detrimental detrimental to your critical scholarly career. Well, that's the problem, <laughs> right? That's ultimately the problem. I think, right? That I think that statement captures mm-hmm. the the structural contradiction that's at the heart of this job, right? Um, because in a lot of ways, there isn't much more to say. That's, that's I think, ultimately the, a problem that I, I can't, I couldn't unsee, um, is that there isn't that much more to do or say, um, right? It's like there's the, there's the economic structures that, um, are intransigent and can be struggled against by different levers and means, including unionization, et cetera. There's the psychoanalytic components. There's the institutional logic. But that, what else is there? That's kind of it. <coughs> yeah. And so, well, you know, one of the things I would say is I would also limit this when I, like, I did not network in university very well. Um, and if I was only in there for the cynical reasons, I probably could have and, and done a lot more with it. But I don't look back on my days of being in graduate school as as like that. And I also, despite the economic costs, despite the absurdity of some of what we're talking about, I don't completely regret doing it either. Same. Yeah, same. Um, but I'm glad that I didn't go all the way um, because I do think that I, I know people who, who that becomes a, a cul-de-sac for them and yeah. there are ways out of it and people are trying to figure that out. But like, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's often very damaging to people. And, and I find it interesting because uh, I've had conservative friends who dropped out have had very, very left-wing friends. Uh, uh, one of my mentors was a conservative Hegelian scholar. Part of how I became a Marxist to his great shame. Um, you know, he probably loses sleep about it now. <laughs> um, but uh, he eventually dropped out to become like a philosophical ethics counselor. Like, because he just found the work unrewarding and, and not just from like, Oh, it's full of liberals. I mean, he was complaining <laughs> about that too, mm-hmm. but he was just like, it, it, I don't like, I don't know what the work is doing anymore is what he would often t- talk to me about. It's like, it's not even that, you know, Oh, it, it's just pushing, you know, he would have said political correctness at the time that I was talking about this is about 15 years ago. And we were colleagues at that point, but um, it's like I, I don't know what I even want from this institution. Like I don't I don't know if I had got the classical education that I'm that I like supposedly promote as a good, you know, conservative educator, that it would even fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Which I, I admired him for being that self-honest. Mm-hmm. Um and I think a lot of my leftists and liberal friends had the same kinds of cul-de-sacs because they they um we're in a lot of ways encouraged by this culture to view everything critically, to see everything politically too, um, and, and morally and 
you know how I feel about conflating those three things, but, <laughs> um, but, but then realizing that what they were doing had like no effect on that. And it seemed wild that they would have ever believed that it would like, yeah. And that's, you know, it is weird when I try to explain like, yeah, you know, I, there's a lot of people when I was in grad school who really thought the critical humanities were going to change the world. And like, it's, it's very hard to see that now, like why anyone would have ever thought that. Um, yeah. I and, mean, I guess it depends what you mean by change the world, but I, <laughs> I, I think I agree with the sentiment. Um, well, I think, yeah. Um, but I also think to, to not be totally cynical for a moment, that if we had been able to deliver on the mission in which we were supposedly engaging on, which was truly re not abandoning Western culture. And easy, that's, I, I think that's a conservative, like straw man of what, what left and liberal academics are really trying to do. Um, but really re reinterrogating, reintegrating it, expanding it, making it re re relativizing it. Etc. And by re-relevizing it, I don't mean like relative, like making it knowledge relevant, relative. I mean like making it relevant again, mm -hmm. um, as part of our understanding, both for good and ill, of how our uh, the narrative are of the way we understand our political economy and culture. Um, I think if we'd actually been able to do that, that it would have had some pretty big social effects. Um, and interestingly, we kind of have done some of that one of the things about this that we have seen is like when i was in grad school uh the kinds of terminologies we used in grad school you would have never seen in the new york times why like, even if they were discussing some of the same books um uh, now you can find that stuff on blogs for teenagers like mm -hmm. and I mean, so that has twinkled out but hasn't been as effective as maybe we hope i don't know well i guess this is right the this is the culture wars stuff right that mm -hmm. that i think maybe you know we we could gesture towards right like discourses around um around culture and 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 gender and and race and and justice and and um, and discourses around trauma and these sorts of things are are things that that do come in part, right? Um, not completely, and I would never want to misconstrue that causation, but in part from the critical humanities um, in certain ways, like you said, blog posts is, you know, you see that that kind of language in in blog posts and these sorts of things. But then the issue is, like you said, like, why... Like it worked, but why didn't it work? Right. I guess mm -hmm. would be the sort of double bind question that we're left with. And I think ultimately for me is that again, I mean, you know, all it's funny after, uh, after all this time that, that, that this would be coming out of my mouth, but, um, did the underlying structural dynamic change Right? Have have we has has the culture stuff and 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 some of that critical work given new potential weapons to particular polities in the struggle over the structure, the political structure of the family, um, of 
of the way we think about um, the way we talk about political issues? Absolutely. Did that create real effects? Absolutely. Now, the question, though, does ultimately, it has to revolve back to what structural dynamics shifted, right, in the aftermath of that. Um, What incentive structures shifted in the aftermath of that? Uh, What, you know, I think shorthand, I think the word material gets misused, but um, what, what material structures have shifted and changed? And some have, some have shifted and changed, but um, it's, it's hard to parse the interplay between the, the way we talk about certain things and how that relates to the actual change, um, uh, dare I say, like on the ground in the structures themselves. Uh, and, and I can, I can say it, um, quite clearly, like, for example, in, in academic, in, in, in just my particular experience with, um, the, the UAW fight as a rank and file member, right? Not in leadership, but we had, there were plenty of ways of voicing and talking about and using critical language to interrogate and investigate the relationships of power at the heart of that, of the, the negotiation and the, the precarity that graduate students feel and, and experience. And none of that really brushed up against the power itself, right? So then mm-hmm. it, it becomes that question, right? And in an almost way that we have to keep coming back to, right? Like what actually is going to be the thing that exerts the force that 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 opens the door for that talk and those and those intellectual understandings um mm-hmm. to really apply themselves. And I think that's where, you know, we have to look to history for answers to when when and how those sorts of things have happened and i know you know i know your interest in in the soviet union uh and and other experiences of of a sort of left left attempts to apply the ideas um you know that i'll I'll defer to those those conversations and and those shows that you've done um and this is where questions over you know things like social democracy and things like that you know have to keep rearing their head like actually how are these ideas going to be able to be applied in institutional contexts and this is where i think ultimately um that a lot of like the left left lawyer space uh becomes a space where there's potentially meaningful avenues to affect change through levers of power but you know there there's a lot of difficulties there too but i i i think given my experience and given my proximity to certain types of polemical political um, language uh, over the, over the years, um, I, I don't see how that language uh, can do more at this point than convince people um, intellectually of what justice could look like. Mm. Then the question becomes, what are we going to do? And I think, I mean, who, you know, who has the answer to that? Um, I mean, certainly make yourself known if you do. <laughs> you know, the, I, yeah, I think this is actually some, some really crucial things to think about because 
know, I think about the Soviet Union. I think about, I mean, one of the things I'll say is like the educational capacity of the USSR. Um, even if you're not a Marxist, has to be remarked upon how how fast they build up an educational capacity of a serious degree, and of which compared to, say, modern Western academia, both in the United States and in contemporary Europe, um, was more actually meritocratic. And I, I say this as a person who thinks almost all notions of meritocracy are kind of bullshit. <laughs> but but there was more there. Um, I also think it's led to a lot of people to like miss some, some crucial things. Like, for example, even to this day, Russia is a highly educated society. It does not lead to what a lot of people who try to sell education as a neoliberal improvement project or oh, a forest sure. improvement yeah. project or whatever. It just clearly doesn't do that. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I can, I, I, I cannot tell you how many civil and structural engineers I met in, in uh, Egypt and in uh, Mexico who were working menial labor jobs, like with, with, and it's way more than you would think. Like it, it was actually sort of shocking. Uh, so I don't have any illusions about what this does in and of itself, but I do think um, for the people who are inclined towards it. And I want to like, I don't want to overvalue education either, but I don't want to undervalue it. We, we live in this, I feel like we live in a time because of our particular political economic structure where we have a kind of incoherence, not quite right. The other metaphor is insulting to people with schizophrenia, so I'm not going to use it, but uh, contradictory and unstable notion of, of what you know, the value of intellectual work is um, and the value of this kind of training would be um, and whether or not everybody really needs it. And my answer is no, but for the people who could do it, they could actually help a whole lot of people by doing it who don't need it. Um, and I, I I do really believe that. I, and I don't want to say like, oh, everybody needs to go to graduate school. No, not everybody does. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that if we could, you know, ground this in other, in other more stable social systems, you talk about social democracy, you talk about universal basic services. Um, and I use universal basic services, um, advisedly, not just universal basic income, mm -hmm. um, uh, where this might be a more meaningful distinction where we can start saying, okay, well, you know, some people don't need this. Some people to do. Uh, everyone's needs are met. There's, there's enough work to go around. So, and, and, and uh, we can utilize these skills if we want to. So, you know, there are ways to do this that are interesting. And I, I think another thing that we haven't really talked about is, you know, the cultural part of this is really good, but, um, and I do believe in institutions as social institutions and that learning is social. So I should also caveat, like, there's a reason why even if you use Sci-Hub to break all the all the, all the the barriers to access, you're still going to have issues. Well, right. right. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, um, uh, Precisely because uh, 
if there's anything that grad school has taught me is that uh, reading is not a stable, uh, objective process. Um, so there are many different ways to approach reading texts, and without that, the social layer, the the sort of the the libertarian version, just it it ends up conjuring a void of, like you said, social learning. Right. You don't know. There's a whole lot of stuff beyond the text that you need to really engage and and do the text. I mean, it's like when someone asked me, this is completely different, but it's, it's related. Um, when someone asked me, for example, you know, which book should I read to become a Buddhist? This has been asked to me multiple times in my life. And my answer is That's always, a funny question. there isn't one. Yeah. Like, um, you need to find a community that will, and then you can access the scholarships and, and whatever. Um, and there's plenty of scholarship out there and a lot of it's available for free. Um, but it's not something that you can just go about and do on your own because it has to be like that learning has to be embodied in some way. And that's true for most learning, even the kinds of stuff we're talking about here. You know, there's some cynical comments at grad school of shuffering lex lexicon as coining phrases. And there is a certain amount of truth to that um, in the humanities. Uh, but there's also a way in which that's not really all that's going on. Um, yeah. Nothing is really ever one thing, uh, I think, is, is often a safe bet, right? So, yeah, I mean, there is that. Um, but Yet at the same time, to take the more positive, uh, less cynical side seriously, right? I think what grad school can be at its best is uh, a, a community formation for trying to understand the world and mm -hmm. what the world is. What, what has it been? Uh, how does it work in many different ways? Um, what, what kind of expressions... Uh, in particular in the humanities, have people made of their experience of the world and of their context and trying to, and, you know, taking in part of a community that is dedicated to doing that um, could be what a graduate school project could be. Right. But then I think what we're talking about is a, is a broader, again, a, a broader shift in our approach to the world itself. Um, because I think in a, in a lot of ways, there's, there's a, there's an avoidance of what the world is at the heart of a lot of, um, a lot of humanities discourse, uh, an almost utopian avoidance, right. And, a, uh, particularly when it comes to, um, the, the arts, um, which I think it, that's a part of what the world is. I mean, uh, dare I say that like venturing into imaginary worlds is not a part of the world. It very much is. But um, I think there is, there is a, again, a, a kind of intractable problem there whereby um, we, we, we are going to struggle to, to study the world um, until at certain point one can make peace with what the world is and has been. Um, and that is often very bloody and brutal and precarious and scary. So that 
I think that that might be kind of the the last piece piece of this for me where that sort of stuff get it has to be worked out and there, there's always going to be an imperfect institution to house it but the the university as it stands is extremely imperfect let's just put it that way yeah i would i i would agree with that and i guess my only thing i'd add is the one thing i wish that we would talk about more about this to really push on this is getting this out there for even for the people of which this would never be appealing and they don't really need it, but we need to be in dialogue with them. Mm -hmm. Like that's one thing I do not love about academic culture is it is, it is often cordoned off in a way in which we can't benefit from the experiences of people who aren't in it and they can't benefit from our knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that like I was reading Christopher Lash again. I have a bad habit of doing that. And um, and he was talking about the cultural revolution as this attack on learning. And, and I was like, it really wasn't, though. It was, a, it was like for for all the things that we could talk about, about the problems of the cultural revolution, there were and there were many. The, the rustification of the intellectuals was not actually to punish the intellectuals. It was to equalize knowledge bases between intellectuals and rural communities. That's what its aim really was about. Whether it worked or not, open question, right? Mm-hmm. I think I think there's some evidence that it kind of worked, but nothing ever works as well or as <laughs> or as completely as anyone would want. Um, but uh, and it was resented afterwards for sure. Um, but you know, um, I think I think that's a moment that we could actually learn something. And I kind of don't like the way Marxist discourse has gone on this particularly. Um, cause right now there's a kind of Marxist discourse that, that flattens out the quote professional managerial class, which is anyone with a degree into like a horde of, of bad liberals who are all overprivileged and uh, don't know anything about the true blue collar working class. And, um, if we just, you know, rustificated them and let them have the knowledge of what it was likely, you know, what it's like to be a real worker, they'd only understand. And of course, the people saying this are all academics. Right. right? Like, of course. Like, yeah. Um, and I hate, I don't like that, but I do think there is a way in which, like, no, we should start figuring out because we've been, like, I guess the other thing that we were kind of talked about in the, the in your, your way of framing this within two union battles is, uh, academics are being proletarianized mm-hmm. in a real way, um, and that does. And and initially there was some benefits to that. That's what I'm talking about. Like it actually caused a spill out into culture of mm-hmm. like, you know, we got a bunch of grad students who got don't have enough jobs, and we got blogs, like, um, uh, the, and so the the disappearance of the public intellectual into academia actually was interestingly kind of undone in recent years by the oversupply of of academics. Um, but that really hasn't actually gotten through the other social problems in our society that has classes curtailed from each other, et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and no, I don't think everyone has to learn how to speak all this jargon. Um, uh, but there are things that I did learn in grad school that I try to teach to like everyday people because it really does help them to know how to, I don't know, read for bias. 
or um, yeah, yeah. Uh, understand what a claim really is doing or uh, figure out what the most important information is in any given text so you don't waste a whole lot of time mm-hmm. on the parts of it that aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things are the kinds of things I perfected in grad school and they do help people and they can be taught to people um, in public. And I think, you know, there are ways to, that we have to think about doing that, but it's going to have to be part of a larger social project. And I guess that's, that's my big push is, I think for me, I, you know, I, I, you and I have basically a little bit talked about our class backgrounds before off air. Uh, but I really was sold academia as like the one place in American life where there still kind of was meritocracy. Um, and thus it was a way that like somebody from a intermediate background, whether that be class or racial or whatever, could actually like take advantage of that. And uh, um, that ain't true, really. It's not completely not true, but it's I would say it's like 80 percent false to add mm-hmm. a meaningfulness a meaningless statistic to it. Like, like, um, and, and I think there's a whole lot of people who are, who are in that situation, um, particularly right now. Uh, uh, I guess that my final note is um, we all know that there's a reckoning coming down the pipeline for academia, no matter what, mm-hmm. like, because their student base is going to drop significantly. And it seems like the idea of, of just replacing that with uh, immigrant uh, students is is becoming unpalatable politically for whatever reason. I mean, I'll I'll just say the business model when I started graduate school in 2019 um, at UC was to explicitly recruit uh, Chinese nationals as students to play to pay out of state tuition. Yep, um, and that just is not going to happen any uh, anymore. I mean, because of the geopolitical stuff, it's it. So there, like you said, I mean, there is, there is that part of this too, which is like, it's, it's as a business model, um, as a, as a, as a business model, right. As an experience, uh, is going to keep going through shifts that I think will continue to erode, particularly in the humanities, the, um, any residual, uh, semblance of what the intellectual project of the humanities is. And I honestly think there are ways in which that is, of course, very bad and harmful for the people that sit within that those projects. Mm-hmm. And I think there are ways in which that um, the, the facade um, is, is, is actually quite socially harmful in a lot of different ways that, and not for the ways that uh, any conservative would, would say. And I think it's because it colors, it colors the critical in this gloss of, of, of untruth. And, and I think that that's a problem for a critical politics and, and, and I'm not particularly, hopeful about a broader social project in America for a lot of reasons. Um, But I do think if there is going to be one, it is going to be as a result of something like a a, a kind of um, 
a pretty deep uprooting of of some of the ways that these institutions have uh, have been have been operating and and I, I don't see that as an accelerationist view because I actually don't want that to happen but uh, I think there are a lot of ways in which it probably will yeah I um, I don't have a whole lot to add to that because I, I think I've been on that that warpath for a while when I when I was working in the universities abroad, I, there was this whole academic complex. It was just getting foreign students into the U.S., so they would pay more tuition. Um, and I, I actually remember a couple of times, like sitting down and trying to talk people out of it. Be like, you know, maybe you can. I don't know. You could stay here, go to Europe or someplace <laughs> cheaper. Um, uh, but nonetheless it is what it is but that's 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 over um it, it really is over uh there are some other attempts at the major universities to try to get out of it like ivy leagues opening satellite campuses with slightly different uh acceptance standards and places like dubai uh yeah nyu dubai or things yeah. like that yeah yeah but um and I knew people used to work in that world. So for people who want to know how I got my my world traveling in, that <laughs> was how I'd have got. I, I can't afford this shit. I, I can't like. I'm not. I don't come from money. I had to have academics pay for it. Uh, but um, I could I could see the writing on the wall even ten years ago that this was going to hit some real geopolitical problems and that it wasn't possible forever because like eventually the people are going to just go to institutions in their home country now they got the education here mm -hmm. it, it, no even if there wasn't the geopolitical decoupling um and i suppose one might imagine if 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 one buys into this whole new cold war with china structure is uh, a reinvigoration of the cold war university um i know I don't know, maybe, maybe talking with someone like Daniel Besner about something like that would be interesting. But um, I, other than something like that, I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, of course, thinking into the future is always difficult, but it seems, it seems difficult for me to imagine a way, um, a way to understand how the humanities continues to go forward along the terms of this business model and not continue to hemorrhage its its funding sources. Um, it it's tough. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, and and to I guess make one more point about labor. It's also hard for me to see how these. The, I think these labor disputes are important, and I think they can make provisional winnings. But you said, you know, as you said, there's there's some fundamental problems here that even that the unionization of this labor isn't going to fix. Mm -hmm. um, and. And yeah, there is, and there are some really structural pernicious things that are outside of the university too. Like, mm -hmm. um, if you're uh, a union bureaucrat, uh, and I know leftists aren't supposed to throw this word around, but it, they do exist, um, and you have a steady supply of temporary union members who, however, are not going to develop a whole lot of skill an expertise as rank and file in the five years that they're going to be in that union because that's the max they could possibly be in it. Um, it's kind of a good income stream, but it doesn't require a lot of work because like, they're not going to be there forever. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and so like your investment in that is 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 kind of uh is it's kind of its own thing. Uh, lastly, someone's saying the IVs are going to do just fine. The IVs are endowments with the universities attached to them, not the other way around. Yeah, it's, uh, it's boutique. Yeah, <laughs> like like. Uh, we're not. I'm not really worried about the poor Ivies collapsing, but I I am worried about the 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 poor state schools collapsing if they're not just mass are just turning into what they kind of are becoming in some places like in the South where they're just massive landlords, like mm-hmm. um or or like explicitly politicized like like in Florida with the New College, which is like two hours down the road from where I am right now. So, you know, these there's threats on, in multiple, on uh, in multiple angles, you know, uh, to, to these universities. Um, and, Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of airway airway of time has been spent talking about how universities like you said are, are just landlords or like the, the material economic kind of base or endowments but i think it does need to be said as well like right when one commenter is saying right feudal patronage system there there's a there's a way in which there's almost like a realignment um of what the university is at, at the moment alongside some of these economic uh structures that i that to me it speaks to a, a an interesting kind of politis- politicization of society writ large um in ways that i think maybe could be talked about um but not in the not in the like republican or democrat sense but in the in the sense of like a more explicit understanding of the way the world is working being uh kind of put front and center yeah, I think that's a uh, that's that's an interesting thing to think about. Oh, I guess my I guess when I think about this, I come to this point of like we do need to have a bit of complexity in how this exists because all the as you said earlier, all these things exist as tendencies in the same institution. Mm-hmm. Um like from the most cynical to the most ideal like there are real pockets of these idealistic things that we are we are talking about that do really exist in the university mm-hmm. probably pretty minor but like i encountered them <laughs> like they're not and not every actor is cynical like of course not yeah right um so that's, that's what's kind of heartbreaking about it too right like at times where yeah the, right like so many there are many people who mean very well and and um and then have to encounter these structures in particular ways that that are very difficult and require unfortunately at times like you know i mean like say i some of my mentors and and advisors during the strike would give lip service to the strike and then you know cross the picket line and do our work for us and things like that and these are people who are imagined as critical intellectuals right and people have said this all the time i mean we there's tons of stories from um from judith butler giving money to kamala harris to you know things that i think come from structure like people who do mean well that's not necessarily a personal attack on butler at all i'm a big i deeply respect um their their work but there are structural limits to our capacity as actors within systems 
that um that are go way deeper historically and in at grander scale than our individual agency uh can allow for and so um that's just that's just what happens right when you throw throw people into a system and a and a structure that that produces these uh very confused and perverse contradictory incentives and impulses and punishments as well um so yeah I, I, what uh, one last thing i'm going to address is one of the questions in the chat which is could at least part of the collapse be prevented by slimming down the university administration and i would say temporarily maybe but the, the I, I, I'm going to actually say a lot of that university administration exists for a reason um, other than its own self-perpetuation. Like the whole, I've never been a believer in the Graeber bullshit jobs thesis because mm-hmm. usually when we get rid of those jobs, we discover that there is a reason why they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, the reasons for a lot of the university administration are frankly legal. Right. Um, well, it's, it's legal. And then I, I think another thing I would add is it is, I mean, if we're going to say it's a medieval institution, it, it has to be that way, right? Like mm-hmm. the the structure of facilitating the different funding sources up the chain of mediation requires an immense bureaucracy. Um, and and that's something that, yeah, I mean, it, you know, maybe you could shift around who gets paid what, obviously, right? And you could trim things here and there, but again, it comes back down to a question of like, what is the university? What actually right. is it doing? Rather than, well, what if we just chop off this arm yeah. and see, see what happens? Yeah, this arm that we all hate, but yeah. we forget that the arm might be there for a reason, exactly. even if it's choking us. Like, yeah, um, uh, yeah I, I I tend to this, I, I, for the same reasons, I tend to think we have to look at what the university does and and... You know, my I'm going to echo something you you you've strongly implied is that there isn't anybody in the system, uh, and and I don't just mean by this by academics like like people funding it, the states who are procuring this, the endowments, etc., who really have a strong incentive to look at all of what a university is doing, all of its social functions, um, and. Uh, that makes it a very unwieldy thing to reform or to fix. Um, I don't blame anyone for leaving it. Um, <laughs> but I also don't blame people for staying. And that's kind of like, I mean, for if nothing else, as a person who's changed careers four or five times, there is eventual sunk cost. You just like, it's real hard to get out of the sunk cost. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I don't think... I, I tend to think that people shouldn't be blamed for very much. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there's always reasons why people make the decisions that they do. And that, that's a, that can be tricky to play, to play that game. You know, it, it, it becomes often a, uh, um, a mise on a beam where you, you lose the thread pre- pretty quickly. And, um, I just want to answer, uh, Colin's question in the chat. Actually, we, uh, yeah, we talked about, uh, I think we cited, we cited you Colin <laughs> on, on your and Varn's conversation about the, uh, the universe, the university having leg a kind of legacy medieval structure to it. Um, it's certainly more complicated than just asserting that outright. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's it, to call it a medieval institution is to maybe give it too much credit. Yeah, I, um, I agree. <laughs> um, uh, it's also a Cold War institution. It's a neoliberal institution. And I will say this: uh, university life 
for reasons that I, I don't entirely understand, seems to be recuperatable in ways and restructurable in ways that other kinds of institutions have a hard time being. Um, but so, you know, anything we say about it, whether it's the, the legacy medieval university to, oh, the neoliberal university, it's like, you know, partly true. Like, um, but yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on today. You give me about two hours of your time and it's a lot. I'm glad we had this conversation and, uh, just so, so, so you guys know, part of the reason why this exists is not just for me to advocate for a political position. Cause like, I'm not a member of any political group. I'm, I'm, I am a Marxist analyst. I'm a Marxist advocate, but like, I'm not a member of a Marxist party. Fuck. I don't even join the DSA. Um, uh, I am a I am in a union, but that has nothing to do with what I do here. Uh, this contradiction of academia and the audience problem has been on my mind for 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 like fifteen years. Where I'm like, I have skills, I want the good parts of these skills to be spread around, and there weirdly are means to do it, even if they're shitty and capitalist or whatever. But uh, they're free or semi-free for the loser, or at least way cheaper than a degree. Um, but th then you do come up with some of the other functions of the university. Like, yes, I can educate you, but that's not going to get your credential. It's going to help you get a job. Um, so, you know, there, there are other parts of this that I want people to look at. But one of the reasons why I'm having this conversation is like answering some of the problems that come up in this is part of what why I do this is because I'm like, Oh yeah, there's like, there's stuff that's life changing that you can learn from some of the scholarship. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of bullshit, but like, like it, it, you can't have one without the other, honestly. Like, yeah. That's life. I think yeah, like, <laughs> like we're not going to get the good stuff if we don't have to wait through some crap. Um, and so on that note, I, I want people to just think about that and think about maybe, the social conditions that we should be advocating for that would enable the people who need it. And again, I don't think everybody needs to be an academic, my God, but please don't. Yeah. Um, uh, but for the people who need it are more importantly, the people who want it and could benefit from it for it to be available to them in some ways, even though I have no delusions about replicating all the social functions of a university. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say two things. Uh, one if you want a five-year contracted job at a at a wage that's pretty stable, if that's what it is to you, it's not a bad choice going to grad school. Um, yeah, I think that 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 should be said, and it's important that that is said. Um, and then to to your point, um, Varn, about you know having conversations like this, I just wanted to say, like, I appreciate the fact that you're you've always been open to having a genuine conversation about things uh, with people who aren't necessarily linked up to the particular status games of, <laughs> uh, dare I say, just like kind of all of the attention economy, um, including, uh, including academia. And that's something that is, it's hard to find and I, you know, I really appreciate that personally for the conversations that we've had over the years, but also just uh, for listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's the other part of the mission is 
finding people who I think would be interesting regardless of whether or not anyone would care. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just so, so you know, like uh I, I could do the easy route and, and this is not to slight him. I actually am quite fond of him. I could have Matt Chrisman on every day and I guarantee you this would be bigger, but I don't think it, I don't I don't think uh people would learn as much from it. Yeah, so. no, I mean trust me, I I, I had a podcast where we fought with him and generate a lot of numbers but i i think i think uh an honest conversation uh like this honestly is does more teaching and and is more insightful than than that which is no slide on him i actually find him kind of insightful nowadays but um yeah me too i like i like christmas um but but yeah I, I also people should go back and listen to that um uh interview you guys did with him on superstructure uh because I, I listening to it, I, it was a matter. It wasn't a matter of who won. It was like, who actually understands what the other person means? And I get, got by the end of it that both of you kind of did a little more. Um, but it was an exercise in like your assumptions about what political is or isn't were completely different. And interestingly, as a site, just as an outside person who's listened to both of you and talked to you now for for two or three years, you're closer to each other now than you were when you had that conversation. Absolutely. I, I, I definitely <laughs> agree with that, which I think, I think is, it's kind of beautiful in a way. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that that's how life goes sometimes. And, uh, and I think there are ways in which a kind of, hopefully, I mean, dare I say like a consensus around this kind of like, uh, materialistically inflected Keynesianism can with a uh, with uh, touches of Freud can be a uh, something that people can dip in and out of in ways that that don't feel too theoretically charged or uh, sectarian. But that might be a, a more hopeful uh, gesture on my part. But anyway, yeah. uh, maybe it could happen. I, I I hope so. But on that note, thank you so much. Have a good evening. I would ask you if you have anything to promote, but we were talking off off air. I guess, do you have anything to promote these days or do you just? No, you just not free? really. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you could, I don't know, see my tweets. Sometimes I say things that are funny, sometimes insightful, but uh, yeah, you know. If yeah, you I do enjoy me, your you Twitter. You know where to find me. But uh, it, it, I also say it's tenors change in the last year. So yeah, certainly <laughs> it has. All right. Well, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video and other perks such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on 
iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.